And that hasn't always served me well. <laughs> All right, let me just be very candid. I, I think it's really important um, because it level sets, right? And it allows you to say, look, everyone, we don't, we don't know when this is going to be over. We don't know if this is going to be over. But what I can tell you is this. If this is our new reality, we will create a way to thrive. And that's not what people are saying to folks. And that's the mistake. Because to me, you can tell people it's going to be hard. This is tough. Things have changed. I don't know. But you got to tell them, but we're going to win. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. Before we turn to our conversation about wisdom and uh, seeking counsel from one of our, our favorite superstars, uh, Doug, you have, you have some big news today. We do. Uh, Inside Higher Ed uh, announced this morning that uh, we're going to become part of uh, joint forces with Times Higher Education, the British higher education publication. And, uh, and uh, the two of us together are going to be a uh, kind of international global powerhouse uh, covering uh post-secondary slash tertiary education, as they call it uh, in a lot of other places in the world. Um, and uh, we're really excited. So it's uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting adventure going forward. Scott Jassick and I are sticking around for foreseeable future. So uh, we're excited about that and looking forward to partnering. Um, so that's, you know, we're excited. That's, well, congratulations. That's big Thank news. You. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you're buying the next time that we <laughs> uh, we go anywhere. And in general, Time Fire Ed has always been a fantastic partner. Um, so it, it's a really great convergence of two exemplary brands that prioritize students yeah. around the world. So um, that's fabulous. Congrats. And Thank now you. we'll head yes. on to the show. Yes, and uh, we're going to be joined today. We are joined today by Michael Sorrell, president of Paul Quinn, who college in Texas, who's uh, again been on the show before, and uh, one of the more thoughtful presidents and leaders in this in this uh, industry. And really excited to have you here, Paul. Uh, Michael. Thanks. It's all right. I've been at Paul Quinn so long. People do <laughs> exactly. Now just assume my name is Paul. <laughs> Happy New Year to you, and welcome. Thank you. And congratulations, Doug. You, you are now my exit strategy role model. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had the we missed the opportunity to break the news live on on air and have uh, your reaction, uh, but we gave you right. a little bit of a spoiler because the news broke out earlier. So we wanted to try and have a conversation today. It would be kind of a level set um, that folks came home. People were very burned out before the break. There's a lot that's happened in the past few weeks and where we are in terms of COVID. Uh, President Sorrell, you have been a longtime friend of the show. You've been on the show many times, and your wisdom has always been a useful guide for people. And I'm hoping that today we can just have a conversation about how you're leading in this moment, the kinds of inspiration you're providing for folks, and just help us think about the next week and the next few weeks with as much optimism as possible. 
Well, you know, first of all, it's always good to see you and Doug. I always enjoy being here and just continue to commend you all on the work you're doing during really difficult times, right? Like you're still setting a high bar and encouraging people to dream bigger and to think. And, and that's just, that's so important, especially now. Uh, but let's, let's be very, very clear. People are broken. People were told that, I, I think there was an element where people thought, well, this might be a sprint. And then people said, well, it's probably not going to be a sprint. It's maybe might be middle distance, right? Uh, middle distance race. And then it became apparent that this might be a marathon. The problem we face now is somewhere in the back of everyone's mind is folks are beginning to start asking the question of, is this now my life, right? And if this is my life, I don't like it. Let us be very, very clear about Americans. They are horrifically spoiled, right? I mean, they want what they want when they want it. And they don't want to be told no. And they don't want to have to, you know, make great sacrifices for extended, sustained periods of time. And when they do, they start to behave in the way that people who are accustomed to getting what they want behave. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, look, the reality of it is this might be our life for a while. Right? And it might be our life from now on. It doesn't mean it will always be what it is right now, but there are going to be variants. Those variants are going to pop up. We're going to have to make peace with the fact that we're going to need to be vaccinated. What we are seeing, like, let me, let me tell you what I, what I think has happened here and has made this so difficult. We've never had a, a sustained national crisis, right? So none of us have lived through a real world war. We haven't seen things that have required us to change our modus of operandi for extended periods of time. Viruses, pandemics evolve, but we had no context for that, right? Each healthcare scare either was compartmentalized or was able to be pretty quickly addressed. This hasn't been able, we haven't been able to do that. You had the CDC, which has been overwhelmed. And, you know, look, our whole lives, we've had this comfort that the CDC got everything right, you know, and they got it right. And, and we were able to say, oh, because nothing was as complex as this, but this has been a perfect storm. You had this happen at a time where you had, you know, look, let's call it what it is. You had a presidential administration that really didn't want any part of these type of complex issues, right? Wanted to reduce everything, you know, to just, it was, it's not what it is. It's simple. It's, it's whatever. And so now what we should have done from the beginning was say, hey, we don't really understand this. And we're not going to understand this for a, for maybe for a long period of time. We're going to do the very best we can, but we're going to make mistakes. We're going to set as our North Star, saving the greatest amount of people's lives and preserving their health as possible. And doing so is going to require sacrifices. And it's going to require us having to step on some toes in ways that we may not like. But we weren't in a place as a country to have that conversation and to hear that. And so now going back, because what people remember is I made enormous sacrifices for a period of time and it was terrible, 
right? For many people, they still haven't recovered economically. Many people haven't recovered emotionally. Just when you think you can breathe, here comes Delta, right? The Delta variant. And, you know, for me, when we got to Delta, I was sort of like, all bets are off now. <laughs> okay, right? Like, like this thing, I have to change how I'm thinking about all of this. I now have to govern myself, my emotions, my family, and my institution from a perspective of there's going to be ebbs and flows with this, and we're going to have to gear ourselves up for it. And we're going to make decisions at all times. Like we did establish that North Star. We're going to function in a way to preserve health and safety. Um, and that's going to make some people uncomfortable. And we'll, we'll fight with anyone about that. Now we just have come to realize with Omicron, like when Omicron came around, we were sort of like, it is what it is, right? So we're going to have to turn back. We're going to delay the in-person start of things. We're going to make some modifications to try and preserve you know, sanity as much as we can, but we're also now not compromising on tough decisions. Not that we ever did, but now we just realize that we have to continuously communicate that tough decisions are going to be part of our everyday lives now. So let's go there in terms of decision-making. Um, uh, first, I, I had other questions to ask you about just kind of how, um, and at some point I want to hear how you stay optimistic and focused as a leader with all of this noise, but I want to go to decision-making first, which is um, over the past two plus years, uh, I assume that your style of decision-making has, has evolved because you've had to deal with much more complex issues, more rapid, uh, less information, maybe too much information. As a leader, and you reflect on yourself personally and how you have made decisions, what strikes you the most in terms of that change? So it's interesting, uh, Bridget, I actually crisis manage differently now. My background, for those who don't know, my background was in crisis management, right? Like that's that's what I grew up doing, grew up, right? Like as a professional, I grew up doing. You know, crisis management is really a very lonely place. What this sustained crisis has allowed me to do is to invest in my leadership my cabinet differently, right? And so, for example, I created a chief administrative officer and, you know, she's been with us for years, right? Over a decade. She was our VP of academic affairs. Um, she did, she was VP of institutional programming uh, or sponsored programs. Now, you know, I've moved a significant segment of things under her authority. So she's our COVID czar. Right. She also, and as the COVIDs are, she also has direct reporting responsibility through student affairs. Our academic affairs people, you know, we really sort of narrowed their scope of responsibilities to just academic affairs because things are changing so rapidly. You can no longer engage in, you know, the same kind of planning processes. You've got to have faculty members able to shift rapidly or shift their their method of delivery, their mindset, like where they are very, very quickly. So, you know, I mean, the CFO is, you know, CFO. So, but, but his issues are different, right? Because at any given point in time, you know, like, well, let me say this, his issues are different because we're going to have to rethink the educational model, right? Because, I mean, like, let's, let's think about this for a moment now. There are lots of reasons why people have come to college. People come to college because of the transactional nature of it, absolutely, right? Like, 
I think going to college is going to help me provide for myself and my family better than if I don't go. That's still true. People still understand that. But the part of it that's changed is this huge social dynamic, right? I'm coming to college because of the experience, because it's fun, because I get to go to parties. I get to join a fraternity or sorority. I get to do all these clubs. I get to do all this stuff. You can't do that the same way now, right? Like you can't, you, you, you just can't. So now you're seeing people sit around and say, well, this changes how I look at going to college. Because if I can't do all those things, then I have to introduce a different set of decision-making parameters. Now it's how do we as institutions, how do we as an industry respond to that? Because it's going to be different. We're now in a place where this is the third year. This is the third year that's been impacted by COVID. So we're looking at a class of seniors next fall that COVID will be all they've known, right? Like there'll be large numbers of people with no context for what college was like before this. So how you communicate why you should come is very different now. You need more voices at the table. You need people prepared differently to participate in those conversations and in that decision-making. So it's definitely my, my, leadership style has evolved. Um, and, and I've also had to really understand the impact that all this is having on me and my family and carve out the opportunity to decompress and realizing that Christmas break just wasn't enough time. It just yeah. wasn't enough time. Can you expound upon that in terms of, um, we were just chatting before the break about, or before, before starting about just like where folks headspaces. Um, and it depends because we're all kind of disconnected. We don't have the, we're not out in the halls of a conference anymore. We can't kind of pressure test whether or not we're really right or wrong. And we're all in these small clusters of communities. So our, who we talk to is, is limited. Um, what I'm picking up is that people were super burned out before the break. They went away. They thought that would help. They came back January 6th with way more triggering for certain folks than they expected. You know, Omicron on top of it, it's just... Uh, I think people thought they would come back with a renewed sense of optimism and instead they're coming back with a bit more like uh, exactly what you said of like, is this really, is this really it? Well, and especially Michael, before you, you start like that, that you, you talked about that, uh, the, the track analogy. And part of the problem was that we thought it was going to be a sprint at various points. We've, you don't, I'm not a marathon runner, I'm not a distance runner, but you don't sprint very much <laughs> when you know it's a marathon, but because it's because of the way it's unfolded, we've been sprinting a heck of a lot. I guess that one of the questions now is in terms of messaging, in terms of trying to encourage people to think in certain ways, do we, it seems important that we acknowledge the long-term yeah. nature of it, but, but figuring out how to do that without uh, making people feel worse. I, I don't know. It's a real balancing act. I'm curious how you think about that sort of honesty, oh, transparency. I think, listen, Doug, I, I think what you bring up is, is this, where does hope come from? Does hope come from an honest place or does hope come from <laughs> uh, like a Trick your mind a little bit. Yeah. Like, does yeah. it come from, are we building hope on a foundation of sand? Here's here. The only way I've ever known to do things is to give it to you honestly. 
Right. And that hasn't always served me well. <laughs> All right. Let me just be very candid. I, I think it's really important um, because it level sets. Right. And it allows you to say, look, everyone, we don't we don't know when this is going to be over. We don't know if this is going to be over. But what I can tell you is this. If this is our new reality, we will create a way to thrive. And that's not what people are saying to folks. And that's the mistake. Because to me, you can tell people it's going to be hard. This is tough. Things have changed. I don't know. But you got to tell them, but we're going to win. Right? Because that that's what whole Now, you don't have to say, here's my five-point plan for how we're going to win. You can say, but together we can create a plan to win. I mean, however you communicate, but you have to give people a path forward. And right now you have a lot of leaders who are just sort of like, I don't know the path forward. And this is hard. This keeps getting harder than I wanted it to be. And I fundamentally believe, I mean, we're going to win, right? Like I, like I know it, Paul Quinn, we're going to win. Like, because I'm sitting on ideas that we're developing now that acknowledge the landscape has changed. So we're not going to sit around and mope about how the landscape has changed. We're going to change and prepare to thrive in this new landscape because things aren't coming back anytime soon the way they were. So by the time they do come back, no one will have remembered who were students what the experience was, the faculty remember, the staff will remember. I mean, how long does it take to change your your behavioral patterns? So you change. You plan for a different version of today and tomorrow. And then you build it so that people feel as if they can still win. And that that has to happen. And you know, Bridget, I've thought lots about the January 6th stuff, right? And here's what I'll tell you. I think part of the issue is there's still no agreement in many circles about what exactly happened. And this assault on facts and this assault on reality is horrible, right? Because here's what happened. Folks tried to overthrow the government. Now, they didn't try and overthrow the government in the way that people think about governments being overthrown in foreign places that they like to think of as exotic, right? But that's what happened. But because we built up such great protections, they weren't successful, right? Like they couldn't get the military to storm the Capitol. They couldn't, you know, the things that like we've seen on TV, those weren't really present. They saw people they looked at and said, oh, that's my that's my nutty neighbor or that's these guys are crazy or this and that. What people I don't think have fully appreciated, this might very well have been a beta test. Right. I mean, because I look I take a step back and I look at it and I'm sort of like. This is sort of the way we do things at Paul Quinn, right, not as, you know, far nonsensical in some of this, but. We beta test, we see what's going to work. We then come back, make modifications to go forward and thrive. So if you look at it from that perspective, what didn't work? Well, you couldn't overturn election results because you had people who were honest in those seats. You couldn't overturn election results because you had people who had voted honestly. 
So you've got to attack the people who aren't ever going to vote for you and get them out of the equation. You have to do a better job of messaging that th even though there's no factual data to support that the election was stolen, you've got to get credible people to begin to keep saying those things or, or credible, you know, in quotation, to keep saying those things. I think that's what we're living in now. So now you fast forward. There hasn't been adequate protections devised to protect the legitimacy of the vote. We don't have a National Voting Rights Act to protect people's right to vote. You have people in states electing folks specifically with the agenda of overthrowing legitimate elections. So what happens next? And I think that given the pandemic, that's awfully hard for people to understand because it takes you to a place that right now people don't have the emotional bandwidth to manage, but that lack of emotional bandwidth, that, that's where you need your leaders to, to provide the emotional bandwidth. And I don't think we've seen that at the level that would bring mo many people comfort. So I hear you say, uh, you know, you have a sense of how to help Paul Quinn win. And what I'm interested in is, uh, given especially what you've just talked about, it just seems like, especially as you have a political contingent that is defining itself on an anti-education agenda mm -hmm. that is feeding into the disinformation, misinformation, this, you know, confusion about a very clear uh, assault on democracy. I'm curious about how does higher education change its behavior despite being distant, yeah. despite being remote, so that we can help America win. And by that, I mean the people who are being left behind and how we can actually respond. I'm, I just think that the way that we have typically talked about the value of higher education, it always needed to evolve and change. And we didn't keep up. And we, had, we, we were able to kind of uh, bat down criticism or skepticism prior to the to COVID, but now it's just really building. And what I'm looking at as someone who sits in the center and gets the institutions to try and work together, I see certain leaders who have figured out ways to think about this moment and think about the role of higher education that to me embodies the kind of leadership we need. And what we want is for all those people to come together so that our sector can respond and actually step up in a way that supports America winning, whatever winning looks like. And yet, we're remote and everybody's kind of focusing on their own institution winning because we well, have to for survival. Well, let me tell you why I think people have done a little bit of that, right? Because it also, they had to regain their psychological and emotional and intellectual strength, right? Because there is a price of leadership. The price of being strong for others means that sometimes there's no one to help you be strong. So you have to, you know, summon that internal strength again, right? Because look, let me tell you something. I say we got a plan to help Paul Quinn win, but we never think about it. It's just Paul Quinn. Like for everything we do, we're doing with an eye on what the industry and what America can do, right? Because what we know, what we understand is there just more people in the categories that we minister to than there are in other places, right? The majority, like I say this all the time when I give speeches, the majority of people in the American educational system are coming from low income and poverty stricken backgrounds. It's nice to talk about what the privileged class wants, but at the end of the day, we need to be talking about what, 
the 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 marginalized and the at risk group of I don't want to say at risk the marginalized and the people from under resourced environments what they need right this isn't about what people want this is about what those people need and what they need are institutions that respond to them directly right that means more people have to come to college right like we have to open up a way to and, and we know the way right like in fact you know january 20th we're going to announce a pilot program where we are beginning to show what this looks like right and i'm so excited about it um because it's it's critically important we've got to say to people we're not leaving you right we're not leaving you we're going to grab you and we're going to hold you and we're going to pull you up and we're going to make your life better but here's the other thing right Every single person that has been involved in putting this country at risk from a democracy standpoint all went to our schools. They all have degrees from our institutions. We also need to fix our shop because this isn't right. Okay, this isn't right. We have the folks have fed into our own myopicness and produced, we've produced myopic leaders as an industry. And we have to change that. So now we have to go back and really, really engage more broadly. And that means that you've got to take on your legislatures, right? Like, because it's harder for state-funded schools, right? Because they've, they've got to answer, those presidents, those leaders have to answer. To, you can look at what happened in Florida, right? Like, they've got to answer to uh, legislatures and governors that have may have very, very different responses. But the reality of it is we don't, we no longer have a choice to be small, right? Like being small hasn't served the country well. It's not serving the institutions well. It's not serving our students well. So you know what? We might as well shake our heads and claim the big steps and claim the big mantle and lead forward, push forward, fight the fights that matter. When I can't remember what that commission was called. Was it the 1776 commission? Was that it? Yeah, like, come on. Why didn't anybody really speak out against that? Right? Like, how long are we going to sit by and just write off? Like, you, you know, I mean, in many families, you have the relative that shows up at family reunions and just said, oh, when we used to be able to have family reunions and just would say crazy things, right? And everybody would be like, oh, you know, that's your cousin so-and-so. They are always, right? And they were entertained. They were allowed to say this stuff. That's what we're doing now with people who mean harm to our country. So how about we call them out, right? How about we go after them and not allow this to happen? Because acquiescing, we are standing on the verge of paying an incredibly harsh price for acquiescing. And I just don't think it's worth it. I think that's that's right. And I would just end with, if you have, I know that you do this sometimes where you see somebody uh, on your team that needs to get a little pump up and you pull them aside. Well, I mean, maybe it's on Zoom. You, Meet me in a chat room. When you have that huddle right now, if you were to have that huddle with higher ed, what would you say as your closing words for today to you know keep our eyes on the ball and to actually do what's necessary for the future? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, what I tell my staff when they need it is like, you know, look, I love you. Right. And I'm so honored to be here with you. And we're going to go do great things. And it's okay to be down. 
it's okay to have a hard season, right? Like, you know, I, I come from, like, my mother and grandmother were steeped in the faith, right? Like, they were praying women. They, you know, I grew up in a family where my mother would say, son, I laid you on the altar, right? Like, in Black churches, there's altar call, right? And you come and you get on your knees and you pray for whatever is burdening you, right? And my mother would say all the time, she's like, I'm raising a Black male in a vicious society. She's like, I have spent my life at the altar praying for you, right? And so this is a season where we have to lay our troubles at the altar. But this is a season where we have to plan for the next season. This is not all our life is going to be. We're not always going to be in this moment, but this moment will forever shape us. We've all been altered by this moment. Now, who we are in the next season is yet to be determined. But if we do a poor job of planning in this season, we won't have the next season. So remember that I love you. Remember that I'm going to be here with you in this season and the next. But there is no question that in this next season, we're going to be better than we are now. Our next must always be better than our now. And we are going to get there. And that's what I tell them. So I might not tell all the higher ed I love them. But- <laughs> Well, uh, we, that's, uh, that's the message we were hoping for. So thank you for that optimism and perspective today. Doug, big news day. President Strelk, back in, back on back in campus or back, back online. Fresh new chapter head in terms of the academic term. And I'm hopeful about what we'll be able to do. But I appreciate that context about this is just a moment and we'll get through this. So thanks, everybody, for being here. And we hope yes. you have a wonderful week ahead.